0: Mule Eberty is the art and state of being a woman and I think that should be celebrated my name is Michelle Lyons welcome to the celebrate Mule Eberty podcast just a reminder this podcast is for information only and not a substitute for consulting a healthcare professional hope you enjoy the show Hello, everybody, and welcome to this episode of the Celebrate Mule Liberty podcast. I am delighted to introduce my learned colleague and friend, uh, Gronya Donnelly, who's going to chat to us today about her research, her journey with um, understanding how the female athlete works and how we can serve her better. Uh, we're going to talk about diastasis. We're going to talk about her recent adventures at the Female Athlete Conference and about her PhD journey, which we're all very excited about as well. Gronya is the co-author of the Return to Running Guidelines and is also the current editor of the POGP Journal. is a researcher, a clinician, um, and just makes it all look really easy. And we don't know how she does this, um, but we're we're kind of in awe of her in general. She's she's a bit of a rock star. Uh, Gronya, thanks a million for coming on and welcome to the podcast.
1: Oh, thanks, Michelle. And um, I was listening to that laughing because we're all inspired by you and oh, steelblades. No, I'm being serious. You set the scene and done things. So, yeah, don't be fooled, anyone. It's not. Um, that does sound like, actually, when you repeat that back, that sounds like I'm doing a lot. And I am busy and I am doing a lot. But I've also stopped doing a lot of things and prioritized things. So yeah. it's, not, um, it's not unrealistic because I sometimes think that life can look like you're doing everything. And I'm not. Yeah. I'm picking and choosing. Good girl.
0: I think that's a really important message for women um professionally that you know you can have it all but you maybe can't have it all at the same time
1: definitely and, not and there's sacrifices there's definitely yeah. things that I'm choosing not to do um yeah. so don't be fooled it's, it's very much I've, stri- stri- I've sorted out things that I want to do and fitted them in I'm still busy but I'm definitely doing not doing a lot of things that a lot of people are doing Okay.
0: So I, th- I think you're, you're kind of like this swan and looks like you're effortlessly <laughs> gliding across the lake, but underneath the little feet are paddling away.
1: <laughs> Definitely. That is me. That's a good, that's, that's a good analogy.
0: Yeah. Very good. So tell us about the female athletic conference in Boston. What did you like about it? You were talking of course about postnatal rehab. Is there anything exciting and new happening in postnatal rehab?
1: Firstly, I love the conference, so if anyone isn't familiar with it, check it out. The Female Athlete Conference in Boston, led by Kate Ackerman and her team. Fantastic, multidisciplinary, very welcoming from whatever background you're from. And I was actually really excited for the first time, Michelle, to see that there was a talk by a physiotherapist, I think from the Middle East, on hip pain. And differential diagnosis to consider pelvic floor so this is one of the first time i have a big pet peeve about this that sports medicine typically ignores pelvic floor and its functions and differential diagnosis so to see this as an actual talk Love i was it. super psyched and um, so that was something that really stood out to me and other than that there was just a lot of awareness and postpartum and perinatal transitions which was fantastic because yeah again we need more airtime for this and not just one tick box talk in a conference yes Exactly. Couldn't
0: agree more. And I I just on the note about hips, um, I will at this point give a shout out to Stacey Futterman, who's a pelvic floor physio in New York, who I think was one of the first people to start putting those pieces together. And she published a paper, I think 2015 or 16, about femoral acetabular impingement and vulvodynia. Um, And of course, you know, like that for me kind of was really, you know, just, I suppose, an insight into how we can marry um msk and ortho with pelvic health you know and we can't just look at parts body parts in isolation it all goes together and especially with the pelvic floor and the hip you know they're so close together how could one not affect the other
1: oh common insertion points are near two insertion points and dual rules you know like it's just it's it's it, it sometimes baffles me that uh, you know at i know times i was sitting at this day and age that we're thinking how are people not considering it and when you have a talk like that it's a real penny drop moment where people are like yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah.
0: <laughs> but, you know, what? Uh, you know, I'm going to say that I think sometimes as pelvic floor physios, we can be a little bit guilty of that as well. We can be very vagina centric. Um, and, you know, and I think as well, then there's some really nice research, isn't there, looking at the role of the deep hip rotators um, at menopause. When we start to lose some of that striated urethral sphincter and we have muscles like obturator internus that we know if we strengthen the hip rotators and abductors and extensors they can be really helpful so I think that's that's an emerging maybe for your second PhD
1: you could have a look at oh, that yeah I just want to put loads of free time Michelle yeah, yeah I, know. I think yeah, I know. You're right. yeah. yeah you're right
0: yeah yeah moving on um <laughs> I would love to bring your thoughts about diastasis into the mix here as well because a couple of years ago I heard you talk about your PPP RRR, double LD, um, <laughs> just your, your framework for talking about diastasis. And I think it's brilliant because for me, it just ticks all the boxes. It's a very, you know, it's very much that biopsychosocial lens of looking at diastasis and decatastrophizing um, a lot of the fears that I think both women's health professionals and also the women who have diastasis maybe have about it. So, The the stage is yours, Grania. Tell us all about your thoughts on diastasis.
1: Thanks, Michelle. And this is a topic I'm hugely passionate about and one that I'm dabbling in bits of research with as well. Um, And it's funny, I remember that um, for anyone listening, Michelle was actually, it was one of my first public speaking gigs and Michelle happened to be in Northern Ireland and I asked her for the opportunity to present or practice in front of her for feedback and thoughts. And she very kindly mentored me in that and it was fantastic and I will forever be indebted to you because i appreciated your can advice I, just say, I
0: had i had very little to do because you're, you're as i said you're i love the way your mind works um it's so logical and insightful but immediately clinically applicable and that's what that's what i see coming through with all of your work doing it's stuff that you can take into clinic the next day so i'm going to throw that right back at you and say you know what yeah brilliant
1: Well, thank you. We can both be, we can both thank each other. Brilliant.
0: (laughs) We're (laughs) both asking it.
1: (laughs) But um, yes, so that's one of my things. I really like clinical reasoning and um, instigating or trying to to provoke clinical reasoning in myself and in other health and fitness professionals and sometimes I think that as health professionals we can become a little bit prescriptive where we just do what we were told to do or what we've seen someone else do and I'm like where where's the thinking and logical reasoning for that person in front of you and it's as you say it has to be individualized and that uh, triple p rld framework that I put together was really a clinical reasoning tool so it's not a protocol it's not a performer that's a one-size-fits-all it's how you can um think about different aspects of the person in front of you and bring it all together to inform your decision making and it basically goes through different biopsychosocial factors and the first one I start off with is person and I think that's the most important so who is that in front of you what's their background what do they want out of this session or what's their hopes with diastasis are they having realistic expectations but we go through a lot of things, from everything to loading to considering um, posture, which is always a controversial one. But I always think that what elements of posture are relevant, what does the research support, and how can we bring that into the equation? And also, is considering things like it finishes with a D, which I might actually ask you if you any suggestions for a less um maybe less fear-inducing name because I call, when I created I called D at the end defect. And I do mean, because mm. I think you can have hernias, I think you can have skin changes, but I don't like the negativity in the name either. And it's so anyway, mm. if anyone has any nice suggestions for how I can change the D at the end, I'm, I'm open to it. But really with diastasis, I think we need to move beyond the gap. I think that's been clear anytime we've discussed Michelle, it's not just about eye distance. It's not just about that midline. It's about the entire abdominal wall and the person attached to it. <laughs> um, and hopefully if we get through the validation process, I'm working with a Spanish team of researchers and we're validating a survey we developed, patient report, I measure that we developed for diastasis or diastasis that will capture the biopsychosocial elements of it. Um, and so we pilot tested it, we're now validating it to see if it's sensitive or if it actually tests what we're looking at or captures what we're looking at to capture. and. If it is sensitive and shows or proves to be validated, it'll be a really useful tool for clinical practice. And it'll be something that one puts diastasis on the radar of the medical um, and public health systems, because sometimes I think mm. it's very much overlooked and considered just to be yeah. cosmetic. Um, So I think it'll really start to bring in those biopsychosocial implications of it. But I also think it will give us a validated tool to repeat measures, you know, how someone's starting off, what's, what's what score are they having? After we do a period of rehab, what's score the have having? So that we can capture things that aren't just indirectly distance focused because we're setting ourselves up to feel. I don't think that's the be all and end all. And I think women are more resilient than they think. And we don't have to be scared of it. We don't. It's actually, and I'll give tribute actually to Anthony Lowe for bringing my mind to think about this, but it's a really smart adaptation of our body it's there for a reason to let the abdominal wall expand yeah but that actual dome and intenting that we see it's a really strong structural shape so if you think of architecture bridges pyramids all the strongest architectural shapes are domes or pyramids or tents so I think it's very clever of our body and we need to champion that rather than be fearful of it
0: yeah but at the same time we do have to acknowledge that a lot of women are and and i think you know what you said was really important that from a medical perspective unless somebody is going for say an abdominoplasty or something like that um, i think it is kind of disregarded perhaps as you know or you're just worried about how you look but if how you look is a barrier to exercise is a barrier to intimacy is a barrier to living your best life then we definitely if we are going to be biopsychosocial we definitely have to take that into account so what again you know the framework is brilliant because, you know, it talks about respiratory and diaphragm and posture, but it also is very person centric as well. Um, are there in your learned uh, experience and um, are there links between things like diastasis and back pain and urinary incontinence? Are there any other issues that we need to be aware of? Because the research has been a little bit mixed on that, hasn't it?
1: So I'll start off by saying that there's a sheer lack of research on this topic when we consider other topics. So it could be that we just don't know enough yet. But Mm. when we look at what the research does tell us, contradictory to what I see in clinics. So I see women turning up with diastasis and urinary incontinence and that they report that they feel it's linked or diastasis and back pain. And they report that they think, again, their perceived um, idea of it is that there's a link. But the research actually doesn't support it. So it would show Mm. that there's not really any significant higher risk of getting back pain or incontinence if you have diastasis compared to if you don't these are things that are prevalent in this population anyway now when we did a systematic review before creating the um, patient I outcome measure the things that we did show were car- correlated are things that you've already mentioned so the body image self-confidence self-esteem but also abdominal discomfort mm-hmm. but it was abdominal discomfort that wasn't so much described as pain it was more described um, as bloating and discomfort um, and there was also um, some association. Now, there is a weak correlation with pelvic organ prolapse. And again, mm. that makes sense in my brain at times. I think we need more research in this, but I think some women are more genetically predisposed to diastasis. And I think given that predisposition, there could be similar predisposition to the likes of pelvic organ prolapse because it could be a connective tissue um, So I'm really excited to see people researching this more Um, and I'm really yeah I'm super psyched about it and I can't wait to see what what happens but fun fact fun fact another (laughs) fun fact another study that I'm involved in with an Italian group of researchers actually and I'm so delighted to be involved in it it's going to look at um, the influence of social media posts on women with Mm. their exercise behaviors and perceptions so are social media posts being good at informing people? Are they not? And are they being fearmonger? And it'll be interesting to see what that shows. So we're doing some mixed method study there. So Ooh. stay tuned. Edge of my seat. Edge of my
0: seat. <laughs> um, so like in a nutshell, then, you know, what is the best way to address diastasis? Because, again, there are, there are so many different ways. And like even just recently, uh, there was a paper that came out that said, you know, crunches don't make diastasis worse. And I'm like, okay, well, that's great. But, you know, what can we do? Like, what are maybe some of the missing pieces, do you think, in how we're looking at diastasis um, and helping, helping people live with it, but hopefully maybe even improve the situation if it is distressing for them?
1: I I totally agree. And I actually want to say when you mentioned about if it's distress and women about how they look, I do agree. Even for the fact of, I talked about Conan and Tenton not being something that is awful because it's actually a really smart body adaptation, but Mm. if you're in an exercise class and you're wearing clothes and you don't want to see something appear and bulge out of your tummy and seem different to everyone else, that is distressing. And Mm. as women, I do think as much as I'm a champion for, um, Going against all the body image pressures and things, as women, we do feel body image pressures. We do, we do yeah. want to look a certain way. We want to fit into the clothes we used to wear. Like that's just normal ways that we feel. And so, I do think that we have to listen to the person's goals. So, if someone wants to improve the aesthetics of it or reduce the pendular abdomen, that's certainly a goal I'm taking in mind and trying to work towards. Mm-hmm. Do I know the best way to do that? I still have a lot of understanding to develop in this, and but I do, I have had multiple cases where the more now it's all about the right load at the right time and progressive loading at the right time so it's looking at that individual and looking at their baseline and then progressing, strengthening, but progressing it to way beyond what we used to do with women with diastasis, including myself. Like I used to cap myself and very much be cautious about diastasis when I think back earlier in my career. And now the more I've nudged that fence and progressed people further, I see the benefits of it. So I do believe that you can't go wrong getting strong. And I know a lot of people say that, and I think that it's a, a very, very catchy line, but it's true because strength and conditioning serves us in many ways, but I do think that it is one of the things that will lead to tissue adaptation if there are changes to be made. Um, And that Mm -hmm. makes sense. We know that if we load connective tissue, if we stress it enough, it will lay down collagen. Um, And so I guess that's the, the goal. My other thoughts and where my brain really hopes that more research comes out in is looking beyond the midline. I do think that it's the entire abdominal wall that experiences stretch and I do think that even the lateral borders of the rectus muscle, the semilunaris, I do see women when I'm scanning them. Now, you don't feel a gap there. You don't um, feel it in the same way as you feel midnight separation. But with imaging, you can see asymmetric widening at the semilunaris. You can see a symmetrical widening. But so I do think that there's given those elements too. And I think that helps me understand better why I may have two women coming in with uh, three or four centimetre midline separation, but they both have very different appearances in their tummy. One can be, you know, could maybe mask, you know, or you wouldn't know they have diastasis underclothes. clothes. The other one has a very pendular abdomen. And I do think what's happening at those two lateral borders gives more, given widening for that pen- pendular abdomen. So I think it's a research area that we need to look into.
0: That's fascinating, isn't it? And it kind of brings back into play then the the kind of some of the ores from your um from your framework, like looking at respiration and diaphragm and ribcage mo- mobility and, mo- you know, just really bringing that in. I want to just circle back because when you were talking about your, um, your research, and I don't remember it was the Italian group or the Spanish group, but you were talking about how that sense of bloating. And I think as well, nutrition is really important as well, because we know that women, you know, twice as many women as men experience IBS. And we know, of course, like the gut-brain axis and if there's emotional dysregulation, that's going to have an effect on bowel function as well. So I think like it's, it's a complete rabbit hole that you can go down, isn't it? You know, in terms of, of exploring different avenues to help people.
1: I totally agree. And I love that. And I'm not as nutritionally informed as you are, Michelle, but it's certainly a huge consideration of mine. And I do think that, again, like you've touched on the stress element that exists with this, the, the concern and the anxiety that mm-hmm. surrounds it, and how that has an impact on the gut and how that then has an impact on the appearance of the abdomen like there's just so many steps and that's why we can't just be indirectly distance focused we have to look at that person and we have to help them understand how all these other elements may be part of the picture so addressing one of them isn't going to be the answer but it's this idea of collectively looking at different elements and hopefully they all come together and I see that that's the way I practice, it, no matter if I'm seeing someone with diastasis or pelvic organ prolapse or incontinence. It's, it's this idea of what are all the factors that might be contributing mm-hmm. to this? How do we, you know, how do we reduce those down so that we're starting to narrow in on what's the lingering problem? Um, and once you start to educate women in a way that they understand and that's meaningful to them, they get it yeah Um, whereas i think if we don't explain that to them it can seem a bit airy-fairy and that we're looking at all these other things but they love it and they're hungry for the information and i think we have a duty to inform women absolutely agree that they should be informed
0: absolutely and and empower them then with that education so that they can make choices about what path they want to go down and you know what you know to not be I've, i've seen i've seen some very judgy comments um you know by people who do end up going for abdominoplasty you know um and, oh, you know, you should you should just accept it and you should just, you know, try physio. But honestly, the the difference that can make to somebody's mental health and, you know, talking to I remember hearing Eilish Fitzgerald, the, the plastic surgeon, talking about this, the difference that it can make to somebody's mental health. But as well as that to back pain and to incontinence as well, you know, we, we really just have to meet people where they're at and do our best to help them. Um. Give them a menu of choices and let them pick from the buffet, you know, what way they want to go with their bodies and their lives.
1: Totally agree. And it, it, that's the only place that there is uh, that that it does challenge my bias when I'm looking at the research is when we look at the surgical and um, publications, because there are cases where mm-hmm. new incontinence was almost immediately, you know, yeah. fixed. and. You know, there is elements where you can challenge that and go, well, how much of that is belief perception, the relative rest period that follows that was actually helpful for all presenting conditions. We don't know, but we need more research. I had the honor of attending Eilish Fitzgerald's a. Uh, surgery surgical theater and um, seeing uh, one of my clients have an abdominal plastic and that was a huge decision and I do think that these surgeries can be life-changing for people um, yeah. and they shouldn't be in the same way as we have surgical pathways for orthopedic conditions for gynae conditions this is no different and so if conservative measures don't meet someone's needs expectations desires wants for their goals their life they have every right to go on and access the help they need 100 percent, couldn't agree more so as well as, you know, all your research
0: uh, internationally, um, you are also the editor of the POGP Journal. You are teaching coursework on not only on, on pelvic health, but also on ultrasound, on uh, ultrasound imaging. You just recently taught a webinar on research methodology. Oh, and casually, let's just slip it in that you're also doing a
1: PhD. Tell us about that. Yeah, Michelle. Sometimes I'm like, "Oh my goodness, someone needs to talk to her and take her aside and tell her to say no." Um, the the yeah, the journal has been a huge learning curve for me being editor of it. It's a huge honor to be asked. I initially said no a couple of times because I thought I wasn't ready. Um, but I I caved and I've said yes, and it's it's great. I love it. I'm really I gig, I love looking at research. I love everything about it, and I love making sure research gets out there and gets translated. Lot of work, so. Yeah, don't be fooled. When you get these journals out and things <laughs> together, a lot of work was in behind the scene. I'm getting my eyes well and truly opened. Um, but I'm also doing a PhD. And what I'm going to look at is the mechanical, perceptual, and um, physical changes or um, influence of adjuncts to pelvic floor, rehab, in part and women, return to running. So the two adjuncts I'm choosing are education, because we always say women need educated more. But has anyone tested? Does that make a difference? So we need to look at that, and also compression garments. So I've already started researching compression garments. I do think there is a role. I to, I'm trying to figure out which women benefit from them mm. and how much they benefit and the why they benefit. Um, so that's I'm super excited about that. Um. Yeah, and I'm I'm really hoping because pelvic floor muscle training is the gold standard. We've lots of research. We know it works. It's really good. But we need adjuncts to serve women for who reach rehab potential and don't get all symptoms resolved, and also women who want to access functional activities and life while they're rehab and their symptoms are resolved. And also, we then don't know what preventative um influence there may be. So the, the future's the future has a lot of research to be done, but I'm I'm really interested in looking at that and super psyched that hopefully all being well if the stars align and all goes to plan. One of my studies is going to involve mri and health floor modeling so i've linked in with some mm-hmm. bioengineers and things so it, it's that's exciting i love I, that that ticks my box i'm just really excited <laughs> <laughs> wow <laughs> first of all
0: um like i think that's again what you know i love the clinically apl- applicability of of everything that you're doing like it's good that's stuff that people can take into clinic and start using straight away um I do think you are steering the POGP journal in a fantastic direction. Sorry, not sorry. (laughs) No, I think it's brilliant because it's a huge amount of work. First of all, I'm glad, you know, you you said that out there because people think it's easy doing things like this. I had uh, the pleasure of interviewing Elizabeth Culleton Quinn um, in in a recent episode. I mean, her paper was fantastic, you know, to really look at again, the qualitative. But the fact that we can bring these articles into kind of into the main conversation arenas, I think is, is fabulous. And um, just before we wrap up, I couldn't have you on here and not talk about the return to running guidelines, which were really a game changer. And, um, you know, the, the full paper itself, all 19 pages of it, but also the infographics that you you published, you know, um, with, with Emma and with Tom, and really just to bring that, you know, into some sort of a logical pathway. You know, first you do this, then you do this, look at GH and PB, look and see what's going on. So it's that combination of objective markers. Um, but then, you know, at six, you know, at two weeks, think about doing this. At six weeks, think about doing this. I can only imagine a huge amount of work must have gone in from yourself and Emma and Tom into this. Um what's what's been, you know, what was your thought process in putting this together?
1: So Michelle, that was a whirlwind and when I look at that journey like and it's so random that's how I met Emma and that's how our friendship began. It was one of those Just random shout out things. Just shout out to Emma Brockwell. Shout out to Emma Brockwell. The UK. Absolutely. Yes. yes. Everyone knows her. If you, and if you're not following Emma, follow her. <laughs> I mean, come on. Who doesn't know Emma Broadwell? <laughs> know. Everyone knows Emma. But um, we basically started it off. So it was Tom and I had a conversation. And then Emma had been in touch with Tom at different points and asking questions. So then we brought Emma on. And that's how we all connected. It was starting off as a blog. Like, let's put a blog out there about how we need to wow. think about postpartum women. And then when we started looking at the research and realizing there's none in postpartum women. Spoiler alert. And... Um, We then started to delve wider and it's like, how wide do you go? Because you're going into all the other research and it got bigger and bigger and bigger. And we were like, nearly like, we can't just do a blog because it, you know, we, we have more to say. So we ended up with this big document that we put out as a white paper essentially. And we probably, you know, when we put it out, we thought maybe a few people would look at it, read it. We didn't think it would be received as well as it was received. And, and that was very nerve wracking. I just want to be really clear about that before I remember the day we, Put it out it was international women's day of 2019 which probably put out in that day and i remember sitting with right ahead publish and it, you know really because because there's a vulnerability about putting work out that hadn't been out there and we're starting to look at things but there isn't actually anything on this research you know we're extrapolating i was nervous um but thankfully they had been received really well and they've been used and they're a starting point they're not the be all and end all there's definitely more research to improve those um and they're a clinical reasoning tool rather than a prescription or protocol that's stuck and rigid so I Mm -hmm. want to be clear about that because we had to put timelines and suggest the timelines out because that's what clinicians want but not everyone will fit directly in that box so don't be afraid to vary out of
0: it yeah yeah absolutely yeah I, and I think that that's a really great point as well, you know, but it's, it's great to have a starting point, like to have a recipe that then you can kind of riff on a little bit depending on the person in front of you. Um, I mean, it's really been, I, I feel like, you know, kind of talking to colleagues all over the world, it was really a game changer. It's very hard to believe that there wasn't any research about this before you, you put this out unbelievable I mean, is it, oh, wait a minute is it that hard to believe though really no, you know? it is though
1: because i knew that internationally <laughs> searching we couldn't find anything but yeah. i kind of assumed that there must be something in other countries i'm just not finding it you know my 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 ability to look for where they are is failing me so when it went viral as such and nearly was being used i was like oh my gosh there's actually nothing in all these countries because they're all now using. like i yeah. that blew my mind i was like whoa um, and it shows that I also would like to give a shout out as I enter further and further into research. And, you know, research is a process and there's, you know, peer review publications are actually very hard to do. And I've got a new appreciation for the work that goes in. And when I'm reading papers now, I'm now like less critical to go, why didn't they look at this or do that? Because I'm like, they probably weren't allowed you know, <laughs> or something blocked them some way. But yeah. um, what I would say is that white paper we put out into the public domain, shows that there's a merit for that type of approach as well, because they Mm -hmm. definitely wouldn't have went as viral. They definitely wouldn't have been as accessible if we had put that into some sort of peer-reviewed publication and they would have been reduced way down to a certain word count. So we need to look at our academic structures too. I do think that there's there's a grey area and I think that we need to be comfortable in that.
0: Definitely. But I think, again, that's an area that you are actually bridging the gap in because you're coming from a very clinically applicable perspective and now you're swimming in the research waters as well so to be able to kind of wear the two hats at once I think you know because a lot of a lot of the papers that we've referred to you know over the past say decade, have possibly been written by people who are not clinically active and so with with all due respect
1: I think it does make a difference completely and that's one of the biggest things I see there's that missing part of the actual clinical aspect and it was so interesting because I was doing data collection recently in Cardiff Met as part of my PhD and it was just fascinating to see the you know the other research team were getting an insight into what we actually do as like what we actually do as our job and even just their understanding now of when they're reading papers has really improved because they get what the floor assessment's about. Yeah. And I think there's, so there needs to be that cross working between academia, clinical practice. There needs to be each sector informing each other and we need to serve women better and serve everyone better, but women, pro-women. Women especially.
0: Yeah, uh, because, you know, <laughs> like like to be fair, women's health has been neglected, you know, in, in the research, but also just clinical awareness as well. And, you know, kind of to, to, to wrap things up, um, kind of where we started looking at that intersection of orthopedic, musculoskeletal athletes, you know, but everybody has a pelvic floor, you know. um, And if we're looking at it though through a female centric lens, you know, like the influences of menstruation, the reproductive years, you know, um, obviously postnatal and menopause and beyond. We know that heart health is the biggest killer of women worldwide. And we know that exercise participation can reduce your risk of dying of a heart attack by about 30%. But also, you know, I, I keep coming back to that research by by Dakich, you know, that pelvic health is a barrier for one in two women from participating in exercise. And that's why I think what you're doing is, is so important because we want to have women active and healthy and happy and enjoying their life. So it's not just about the length of your life, but actually the quality of your life as well. Not to be worrying about leaking or prolapse or diastasis because there's so much that we can do to help women live well you know and I think it's just it's really important that we just bring it into daylight and and to have these conversations so that people do realize there's help out there
1: oh I love that and I do think it's so important I totally agree with everything you said and I I think that you michelle we have to turn the lens back on you a bit because the work no. that you do no i'm being serious and the all the things that you raise and the reach that you have and the way you explain things i actually love the way you explain things is in a really meaningful easy to understand way because you make something really complicated and i'm like oh i can understand that now <laughs> couldn't understand it then but the I was now it's like ah so i really yeah. really appreciate all you do and i appreciate your collaboration and your champion of other women, because I think that's sometimes rare in our world and I really love it. And um, yeah, you're, 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 you're very kind. You're, you're a rock star. No, well, you are.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so, Braulia, where can people find out more about uh, what you're doing and follow you on social media and about your podcast, At Your Cervix, which I've had the pleasure of being on?
1: oh yeah i love at your cervix and um, so at your cervix podcast you can find us on instagram if you just search at your cervix and um, you can find me my website is www.absolute.physio and i'm on socials at absolute.physio and um, so yeah find me anywhere i'm happy for anyone to contact email me whatever and um, have a nosy at some of the content and if you have any questions get in touch and um, but yeah look at there's a really cool badass group of health and fitness professionals all of us looking to really elevate our understanding of women's health and support women. So follow everyone and join the community. (laughs) Speak up. And
0: yeah, I think that's it. Sometimes, you know what, I I do feel like sometimes we are off in our little huddles talking amongst ourselves and it's to kind of bring, bring things into daylight and just shine a light on them and, and normalize the conversation around pelvic health as well, because, you know, the numbers as they are are not good, and we can do better and the the first way that we start is as you said with with education and conversation so Grania, thanks so much for all your knowledge for all that you're doing for women's health both at a professional level but also as as, at a normal person level as well Um, because I think I I really do think you know not blowing smoke but I do think what you're doing will will literally change the direction that we're going in professionally and um,
1: we're all very grateful for you. Oh, thank you so much. I really, I really appreciate that. But I'm also totally cringed and embarrassed. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Excellent. My work here is done. All right,
0: everybody. Thanks a million for listening. And I will catch you on the next episode. (laughs) Bye for now. (laughs) Thanks so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed the conversation. If you prefer to watch, all the videos of the interviews will be uploaded onto YouTube. If you'd like to learn more, there's a full suite of online courses on women's health, including courses on female pelvic pain rehab, female hormonal health, oncology rehab, and more. And don't forget to follow me on Instagram, Michelle Lyons underscore muley for special offers and announcements. Until the next time, celebrate muley Thanks for listening. Bye for now.